Good evening, everybody. Welcome to uh, Temple Emmanuel and our dialogue with Danielle and Michael Sandel. Uh, I'm Wes Gardenswartz, one of the rabbis here. Thrilled to welcome you to our shul. I wanted to start by just sharing with you my favorite Danielle Hartman story and why I love him as a person and as a leader and as a rabbi and why he role models to me the kind of rabbi I would like to be. And when I go to Hartman Institute every summer, Hartman role models the kind of uh, successful, thriving Jewish institution that we all, are all working to create here at Temple Emanuel. And I want to tell you just one story that makes this point better than any other that I could think of. Two Decembers ago, it dawned on me that I was totally missing the boat when it came to a very important issue, which is intermarriage, and that the conservative movement was missing the boat on intermarriage, and that Temple Emanuel was missing the boat on intermarriage, because since 1972, our position had been no to the wedding and yes to the marriage, and that after we pushed away a couple and said, we can't do this wedding, and after a reform rabbi or justice of the peace did the wedding, we'd come panting after them and say, would you like to be connected to our synagogue? And that this was self-defeating. And it just dawned on me because we had so many folks from our shul intermarrying that I felt disconnected from. And just when it would be super helpful for them to be connected to the shul, they were the most far away. So I reached out to the Committee on Jewish Law and Standards, and I said that the um, last time that the committee had really thought about this and ruled on it was 1972. And that the world had changed since 1972, and could you please come up with some new thinking? I'm not even asking for a yes or a no, just new thinking on this question, and for whatever reason, the law committee said no. Which says a lot. And then I mentioned it in passing to Danielle at the Institute, and this was his response. His response was to summon a whole group of thinkers, rabbis, professors, sociologists, anthropologists, who are gonna spend years studying the issue, and we're then gonna talk to the Jewish people about it. What is a thoughtful response to the reality of intermarriage? And in February at Hartman Institute's headquarters in New York, they convened a body and had really thoughtful presentations. And over the summer, they're going to be talking about this again. That signature Daniel Hartman, fearless, honest, thoughtful, brave, totally relevant, totally resonant to the lives that we lead. There's nobody else who does it like him. And there's no institute like the Hartman Institute that does it for the Jewish community, and particularly the Jewish community of North America. Now, if that's what he does in general, that's what he does in this book. Um, as folks who are members of Temple Emanuel know, we've been studying this book for a month twice a week, Shabbos morning, Tuesday morning. And here's my own thinking on this book. 
that when an intellectual history of modern Jewish thought is written, putting God second is going to rank as a major, major work, as a pioneering work, as a preeminent work in its thoughtfulness and in its impact. And why? Because he's totally fearless and honest and thoughtful and helpful and resonant. Here's his basic question that he asks, which if you read the papers any day, has got to be the question of somebody who cares about religion, which is why is it that so often the most religious people do the most morally mediocre and sometimes the most morally atrocious things? If you read the article in the Times this week about the hilltop violence on the West Bank, and you see young men wearing kippot with their tzitzis hanging out, proudly proclaiming that they're racist and they like to beat up Arabs. And they do this as a mitzvah under the name of God. Like Borch Goldstein killed those Muslim worshipers as a mitzvah under the name of God. Like Yigal Amir killed Prime Minister Rabin as a mitzvah under the will of God. And if you, see the, if you read the book, Killing the King by Dan Efron, you see a picture of him smiling ear to ear when he's indicted. Because, of course, he's doing God's will. And, of course, the Crusaders did this. And, of course, Allah Akbar 9-11. Why is it that people who are from do such horrible things? And here's his Kiddush, which is brilliant. It's not that misguided people are mispracticing religion. It is that misguided people are practicing religion. That the atrocities are in the Torah. That the really dangerous ideas are also in the Torah. We like to think about the sublime ideas, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Lovely. But there's a lot of stuff that people read it and it leads them to do terrible things. And Daniel analyzes that and it has to do with our relationship to God. If you've read the book, it talks about God intoxication. He talks about how thinking about God can just cause really troubled conduct. God manipulation, God is on my side. Whatever I happen to think on an issue, how convenient, God agrees with me. And what is it that we can do? Uh, in the face of that, extreme positions are easy. I'm going to put God first. I'm going to be a religious fundamentalist. And I'm going to do whatever the Torah says or whatever my scripture says. Even if it's manipulation, even if it's intoxication, especially because it's manipulation, especially because it's intoxication, especially because it's very convenient that God always agrees with me. It's easy to be a fundamentalist. It's easy to, to throw out the baby with the bathwater and say this whole God project is really dangerous. You can understand atheists like Richard Dawkins, the God delusion, God is not great. But Daniel Hartman, a rabbi, provides a loving insider critique. How can we put God second, saving religion from itself? This book, this man, is why the psalmist says, Ki Torah Adonai 
from Zion comes forth Torah, and from Jerusalem and from the Hartman Institute comes forth the closest thing we have to the Word of God. Danielle, thank you. A privilege to call upon my friend, my colleague, who's been with us at the Hartman Institute several summers with his folks from KI, our sister Shul in Brookline, Bill Hamilton. Thank you, Rabbi Garden Swartz. On behalf of Congregation Kehillah Israel, we are very pleased to share in the specialness of this evening. A word about Michael Sandel, who is up here with Danielle. <laughs> Michael is among the world's leading voices of moral reasoning and critical thinking. His classes at Harvard have consistently attracted the university's largest enrollment for any single course for more than a quarter century. In 2011, Michael's picture appeared on the cover of China Newsweek magazine, where he was named the, quote, most influential foreign figure in the entire country of China that year. Wherever he teaches his master classes in Asia or elsewhere around the world, tickets are scalped like it's the World Series. <laughs> and that is because Michael's gifts for quenching the thirst for morally based discourse that runs so deep is really peerless. Michael also has really terrific taste. This is not merely illustrated by his terrifically talented wife, Kiku Adato, who is here tonight, an internationally renowned professor and gifted storyteller in her own right. It is certainly not because he was one on KI's rabbinic search committee that invited me to become rabbi <laughs> at KI 21 years ago. I say he has good taste because he is on the search committee and the selection committee for the prizes which KI annually bestows upon leaders who champion our values. And the recipient of this year's third Commonwealth Prize is our special guest, Danielle Hartman, this evening. As Wes has said so very, very well, Danielle is one of our generation's most important change agents and thought leaders. The institute that he leads, familiar to so many in this room, is a force of nature, helping to strengthen the bicontinental bonds between North American and Israeli Jewry. As I said, Michael Sandel has very good taste. And I want to personally thank him and Kiku for their leadership and their love. Many years ago, Kehilath Israel began the practice of lifting up and lauding individual champions of our values. Our congregational culture, our ethos, promotes empowerment, inclusion, and the practice of partnership. Earlier this spring, we honored 
Haben Gurma, an Eritrean-born, deaf-blind graduate of Harvard Law School who received the Dignity of Difference Prize for her awe-inspiring work advocating for those with disabilities. Later this coming fall, we will honor Anita Diamond, and she will receive the Love of Judaism Kiddush Hashem Prize for her peerless means of making those on the periphery of Jewish life come to smile on the Jewish way. And Danielle has presented it has been presented just moments ago at a dinner over at KI, our third Commonwealth Prize, which champions a far-reaching change agent for the Jewish people in this historic and blessed time of our third Commonwealth since our 1948 return home. It's hard to estimate the impactful reach of the Hartman Institute under Danielle's gifted and visionary leadership, it's really big, and it runs really deep, and it stretches really far. Hundreds, indeed thousands, of North American Jewish lay and professional leaders visit Jerusalem each and every summer to do what? To grow as Jews. We all know that Judaism thrives in fields of tension between law and law, universalism, particularism, mysticism, and rationalism. The Hartman Institute under Daniel's leadership embraces these tensions in ways that I think you coined the term complexify. <laughs> that which is genuinely complex. And serious students value and indeed cherish that about the Hartman Institute whose shame tov, whose earned good name honors its founder and blesses those who touch it. Daniel and the Machon deserve honor and gratitude for the ways in which their efforts and imaginative initiatives continue to make the common project of North American and Israeli Jewry into a more shared one. For though, although our neighborhoods and our sensibilities sometimes feel very different, we are united by freedom and by faith. Not the freedom of being unfettered but rather the freedom to commit to something larger than ourselves. And as Danielle, you have personally taught me, the freedom to have esteem for free minds. And our shared faith, not merely the faith in God, but also in people, in people's potential to grow, to change, to surprise us for the better. The fruits of Danielle's still young and vigorous body of work taste delicious on both sides of the ocean. Finally, I must say that widening bridges is not getting any easier. When I spoke yesterday to a Tel Aviv friend about the latest political shakeup in Jerusalem, after he expressed his personal disapproval, he gently pointed out Given the climate of your country's current presidential election, <laughs> you probably shouldn't be throwing stones. Yet, we are hopeful. And although I know hope and optimism are not the same thing, it was Shimon Perez, and I think you mentioned it earlier, Michael, at dinner, who likes to say, Optimists and pessimists both die the same way, but they live very differently. 
Daniel, we salute your giving more and more of us good reasons to be hopeful. For this and for so much more, we thank you. And now, without further ado, please do give a warm welcome to Danielle Hartman and Michael Sandow. I think I should go home now. <laughs> it's like it was a nice evening. I, I feel good. <laughs> and usually you feel very good. Uh, thank you, uh, thank you, and thank you. Um, it's very special being here. Um, uh, it's also special speaking to a group of people um, who I see and have seen for the last, I don't know, five years or so on an almost weekly basis. Because what you don't know is those of you who watch the I Engage series, we have a camera. <laughs> And you, you think that you're just watching us. Um, so it's really nice to see all of you here this evening. Um, and to be in a place that you write a book to further thought um, and to be in a place which takes ideas in general and to takes your ideas particularly in, 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 take seriously is, is, is truly an honor. I, I want to speak very briefly about a number of three big ideas um, and, um, and then Michael will, will, will schmooze together. Um, the first, as you said, problems don't go away because you don't want to talk about them. And sometimes it's not popular to talk about the problems. And it's difficult talking about problems. There's certain problems that we like to talk about. Jews love talking about anti-Semitism. It's one of our favorite topics. For some reason, I don't yet know why it makes us feel good. <laughs> I haven't figured that one out exactly, but we like those problems. You see, in particular, we like to talk about the problems that other people have. <clears throat> we are great critics of the world. We love to talk about Christian fundamentalism. We love, get ecstatic, talking about Islamic fundamentalism. But are we who we ought to be? A life of value, a tradition is of value to the extent that it elevates your values, to the extent that it creates in your life an impetus to be a kinder, more gentle, more decent human being. Are we, as the chosen people, 
guaranteed to be living both a tradition and to be living as a community a life of value. The goal of my book is to challenge us to be more than who we are, to challenge myself, to challenge all of us. The goal of my book is to create a culture within the Jewish community in which self-criticism is an act of love and and an act of faith rather than a sign of disloyalty. Success is very dangerous. Power is very, very dangerous. And we today are a people of power. Power in Israel as a majority and power in America as a beloved minority. And with power comes the temptation of perpetual self-congratulation. With power comes the audacity to try to control the conversation. Because you can. You actually can. You could go on campus and go to Jewish studies and go to Hillel's and go to different Jewish organizations and go to rabbis and to say to them, this is what I want you to talk about. Because they don't want you to make them feel uncomfortable. I'm powerful. I'm wealthy. I'm successful. And I want to be congratulated as such. And so we're going to control the conversation. And we're going to determine who loves the Jews and who doesn't who loves Israel and who doesn't? And are we asking the questions about ourselves that we need to ask? Because as I said, the problems and the challenges aren't going to go away because we don't talk about them. Wes introduced very beautifully the core impetus of the book. And it is fundamentally a rejection of the idea of original sin. Original sin believes that the cause for moral failure, the cause for difficulty, the cause for inadequacy, has nothing to do with God. It has to do simply with the fact that human beings are fundamentally flawed. Unworthy of salvation, in a Christian sense, or incapable of ever being whom God truly wants us to be in a broader religious sense, including Judaism. And consequently, any time religion fails, there's only one cause for it, original sin. There's nothing wrong with the system. The system's perfect. Actually, get more of it. The idea of 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 self-criticism actually believes 
and social criticism actually believes that we could overcome original sin. It's unbelievably hopeful, but it requires an honesty instead of a fatalism. We can do better, so let's begin to talk. Our religions could do better, so let's begin to talk. And why is it that more often than, than, than it ought to be, those who embody the high values of ethics that our tradition cares about are those who seem to care the least about our tradition. And who know the least about our tradition. Why is it that often the more religiously committed you are, the less your commitment to moral excellence defines your being as a religious person. Now, I want to be very clear. I don't think religious people are worse overall than non-religious people. That, however, is not exactly a commercial <laughs> for religious life. Please, enter into our tradition. You will be no worse. <laughs> on average. <laughs> In your case, might be, but on average, not. That's not enough of a reason to say that God must be an important vehicle, an important force in my life. You will be no worse. It's not enough. And it's of great importance that we understand that when God enters into the room, something happens to human beings. Some people are elevated to heights of moral greatness. But for many people, this idea of one God, one transcendent being, creator of the universe, is too large an idea to handle. It's like we were given a nuclear idea that as human beings, it is very difficult to contain. Because when God enters into the room, very often it reprioritizes our ability to see. It redefines our moral commitments. God takes up too much space. Because it's God. After all, it's God. Don't you know that this is God? How could I care? about that which is not divine when God constitutes a competition. And one of the interesting things that we learn is that even when God says to people, hello, you're not hearing me, even when God says to them, you're not hearing me, we know better. And in the book, I tell the most very, very beautiful but difficult story of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who runs away from the Romans because they want to kill him because um, as a result of, of him speaking, of him being a critic of Rome. And Rome didn't want that criticism. And so he runs and hides and goes with his son and eventually ends up in a cave. And God protects him in a cave and he causes a, 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 a river to appear and he... And a, and a tree 
with, I forget which something with the, it's uh, Charuvim, I don't know what it's called, Carib, and extensively Carib has all the stuff that you need. And he lives drinking water and eating Carib trees, and the whole day he's just a disembodied head, contemplating the divine essence, until Elijah comes and says, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and Rabbi Yezer, the decree is over, exit, exit the cave. And they exit the cave and they see normal human beings who didn't spend 10 years as disembodied heads, didn't spend all of their being connecting intellectually to the divine idea and truth. And he sees someone working as a farmer. And anyone whom they looked at was immediately consumed by fire and destroyed. For they said, how could you forsake life eternal and deal with life temporal? How could you be involved with the stuff of this world? God is what the religious life requires, a passionate commitment to God. God looks at them and says, what are you doing? Echoing Isaiah chapter 1, God says, who asked this of you? This is not what I want. Who do you think created this world? Me. I am the God who said all that God created was very good and in so doing removes the simple dichotomy between the physical and the spiritual in our tradition. It says wrong religion. So he sends them back to their cave. God says, Are you, have you come out of your cave to destroy my world? Go back to your cave. And God says, this is my world. And they stay there for 11 months echoing the punishment of hell. And this cave is now symbolic of hell. And then Elijah invites them to come out again and again. Anybody who Rabbi Ezer would see farming, he'd again burn with the fire in his eyes. And you ask yourself, what's going on here? God just told you that's not what I want. But this is the essence. God affects us in ways in which God has no control. And in many ways, I would argue, God doesn't even fully understand. The idea of mon I'm not sure, and I don't mean to be provocative. I'm really not sure. No, I mean it. It's like I don't get joy out of it. Some joy. <laughs> I'm not sure whether we human beings would not have done much better with idolatry. It's a smaller God, local. We don't roan him. And as my colleague Israel Knoll has taught me, there were no holy wars. The first holy war is a monotheistic phenomenon. It's when Moses stands up and says, Mila Shem Eli, who is for God? Follow me. And then kills 3,000 people. This idea is a big idea. The question is, how do we control it? How is it a force for good instead of a force for destruction? It's not simple. And recognizing that it's not simple is the responsibility of people who care about their tradition. God intoxicates us not to see others. And in a fascinating twist, God is also manipulated by people of faith so that they could only see themselves. 
and the idea, the biblical idea, that one God only loves one best becomes the, f- the, the, the food, the nourishment, which every monotheistic tradition digests in order to justify its harming, its hating, and its destroying of those of other faith communities. Because they are no longer just simply killing in their own interest. It is now God who loves them best who gives religious sanction to that which they do. A dayenu of the book is to connect to the problem. And when you talk about a problem, the chances of repeating it, the dangers of repeating it, are diminished. And it's a dayenu. Who are we? Who do we have to be? Do we respond with the correct moral clarity when we encounter injustice? Whether it be here in the United States or whether it be here in, whether it be here in Israel. Do we let these moral principles define the core feature of our religious tradition? And do we fight any such instance which doesn't live up to those standards? In the book, I try to tell a story, an inner Jewish interpretive story, weaving together various texts which I hope will enable us to overcome what I call religion's autoimmune disease, where it attacks itself. And I just want to mention them briefly and then then conclude. Every religious tradition teaches the good. Every religious tradition obligates love of neighbor. Love of neighbor and love of God define every religious tradition. There is no religious tradition in which you, at least in theory, could think that it is not God's will that you treat others with gentleness, with kindness, treat them the way you would like to be treated. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are filled with all the verses that will give you nachas that you can put up on the wall, they can fill your pictures. Every one of our traditions has the, the importance of moral responsibility to other people. The first argument that I make is that it's not enough for a religious tradition to advocate the good. We have to give priority to the good. And that means putting God second. Now, putting God second doesn't mean removing God from the room. Second is not bad. (laughs) It's not a bad thing. I even argue in the last line of the book is that when you put God second, you put God's will first. I think God wants to be put second. This is not a book which is trying to remove you from a religious discourse, but to create a, a, a different religious discourse and to create an educational system which knows on a regular basis that it is not sufficient to remind people to do the good if we do not reprioritize our religious systems so that the good is by definition first and that everything we do has to be assessed not merely 
with regard to whether it's meaningful, whether it's profound, whether it creates a spiritually um, um, growing experience. But does it violate our moral responsibilities? And if it does, every religious tradition must correct itself at any time in which the ethical is not prioritized. And while this might seem trivial, human history is filled, is tainted and colored by the bloodshed of those who have difficulty understanding this simple idea of the primacy of the good. And they know that their religious tradition teaches the good. It's just simply the primacy of God which overcomes or, over, or outweighs this idea. And I did not write this book in response to Islamic terror. I wrote this book in response to the community in which I live in Israel. Um, I wrote it in dialogue with them and it's now being translated into Hebrew. And I wrote it in response to a Jewish community which is willing to activate high moral standards and significant systems of social criticism on everybody but not on the state of Israel. And we justify it. How could you criticize Israel? Have you criticized Syria? If you haven't criticized Syria, then if you're criticizing Israel, what are you? An anti-Semite. And in this way, all criticism becomes anti-Semitism. And if you respond, of course I've criticized Syria. We don't rest. How many times have you criticized Syria? And you're laughing because you know I'm controlling the truth. And if they have killed 200, I want a ratio of 1,000 Syrian criticisms to one Israel criticism, then I'll have a conversation with you about the war in Gaza. And that is more or less what we do. And we do this here and we do this in Israel. When one of the most significant national cultural statements is, nobody's going to teach us ethics. Really? Why? Why is it that no one is going to teach you ethics? Because you died in the Holocaust? That gives you a get out of jail card for eternity? And when you see that it is precisely in the name of God, as you so beautifully said. It's not that people simply ignore the name of God. It's, it's God as a catalyst. That has to trouble us. It has to trouble all of us. Because we can and ought to do better. And the second idea is an even harder idea. And it's a very scary idea. Because it asks of people to give up salvation. The primary idea of salvation in religious traditions is not salvation in the world to come. We care about that. 
but we don't lose too much sleep about it, especially in the Jewish tradition. The primary salvation that we yearn for is salvation from doubt. We want moral certainty. I don't want to live in a universe where it's up to me, where I have to figure it out, and I don't know if I know. That's why we don't, we hate rabbis who when we ask them a question, they say, let me think about it. Didn't you go to school already? <laughs> Didn't you go to, that's what you went to school. I raise now $25 million a year for Jewish education, I and my team. We don't get any funding for continued rabbinic education. Because you know. <laughs> what do you mean? I don't need a fund. The whole, the rabbi knows. The rabbi knows. What do you need to learn? I, yeah, the, that's the whole system. And what religion sells is the promise of redemption from yourself. But when religion defines the good, we've created a system which is immune from criticism. Because if what is the good is determined by the text, determined by what it is that you heard from God, then there is no possibility to engage in a criticism because the person will always be able to say, I hear you, what you're saying sounds really reasonable, but it's just God told me to do this. It's in God's name that I'm doing it. When religion is both the system that obligates the good and defines it, we've created something which doesn't have a possibility of being corrected. And in so doing, could be manipulated by any human being. Because when God says a word, we're the ones who give it meaning but then we deny that we are the interpreter. And then God speaks continuously and there's no possibility for any conversation. There's no possibility for any reflection. There's no possibility to ask, are we doing what we ought to do? The second idea that I push for and how to save religion from itself is not simply putting God second and putting the ethical first, but recognizing that we as human beings are never gonna be redeemed from uncertainty. And we're gonna get a lot of things wrong, and we're gonna learn as we go, but that is a, it is a religious obligation and necessity, precisely within a world of monotheism, to keep the content of what are our moral obligations independent of religious life. And as Euthyphro, to paraphrase Euthyphro, we, we must ensure that the good is not good because God loves it, but God loves it because it is good. And that we connect to our independent moral conscience wherever it comes from, and I know it's culturally, it's culturally influenced, and I know it's psychologically susceptible, and I know it's far from certain. But when you have a check and balance, when religious people understand that to love God means to mirror Abraham and to say, whenever's necessary, 
Will the judge of the whole earth not deal justly? Will, will Deuteronomy chapter 20 not deal justly? Will Leviticus 25 not deal justly? Will, Deuter will Genesis 22 not deal justly? That we come to our traditions not in search of salvation, but in search of saving our tradition. We have to take responsibility. That to be a religious person is to be committed to a tradition in which it inspires you, it, it challenges you, it activates you to go beyond yourself. And you, likewise, activate it to go beyond itself. And that that is the essence of the covenantal relationship which we have to have with our religious traditions. If something is of value to the extent that it creates a life of value, we need to save religion from itself. Our goal is not to belittle and to lessen religious commitment. Our challenge is to change it so that it could be the force of good that it ought to be. Thank you. It was a wonderful talk and it's a wonderful book. But I do have a few questions. <laughs> First, I want to say what I greatly admire about the book and its author. That's enough of the flatter. <laughs> the book is brave and it provides a challenge to the most familiar reflex we have when we read of atrocities committed in the name of religion, whether it's Islamic Jihad or Baruch Goldstein and Jewish Jihad. The habitual reflex is to say, these people are distorting. It's, this is not. Islam. This is not Judaism. This is a, a perverse distortion, a pathological distortion. And what's so brave about the book is it says, well, no, actually. That even Jewish jihad has deep roots and textual support in Torah, and it cites them. And that's a very powerful and important point to make because it, it doesn't get us off the hook quite so easily. And it demands that if we want to challenge those within our community who read the tradition this way, we have to engage with the tradition and the learning and the readings and the interpretations, seriously. And that's a bigger challenge than we commonly are prepared for. Another feature of the book 
and of Dunil that I admire is that in these pages, faith and the love of God coexist in a kind of playful, paradoxical irreverence that's illuminating. It reminds me of a teacher of ours, a great philosopher, Sidney Morgenbesser, who displayed this quality in abundance, faith coexisting with a kind of playful irreverence. When Sidney was approaching death, he would ask visitors, why is God making me suffer so? Is it only because I don't believe in him? <laughs> you got to think about that. <laughs> now, if Sidney were here, the question, I should say that the questions I have for Daniil and the challenges are not ones that take issue with the overall project and the thrust of the argument. I would put them instead in the spirit of perhaps helping to equip you, Daniil, with some questions that may come from less sympathetic quarters. The first one is this, putting God second. Well, here's how Sidney Morgenbesser might have put the question. If God's on second, who exactly is on first? <laughs> now, having read the book and listened to the talk, I know the answer that Daniil would give. Well, Sidney would have put it this way. Who's on first? If God's on second, who's on first? Immanuel Kant or John Stuart Mill? Is that, the, is that what you've learned from a lifetime studying and learning Torah? That it's Immanuel Kant who's on first? <laughs> ethics, secular ethics, a conception of the good, the autonomy of the good. Well, Daniil's answer to that might be, well, it might be Kant, it might be John Stuart Mill, but what matters is that it's the independent moral conscience that comes first when God comes second. But then, some might raise a, a reasonable question. Well, okay, you make a powerful point. The good isn't good because God willed it. God loves the good because it's good. And that's a powerful rejoinder. But we who have to judge the good and assert the good in its independence, in its autonomy, on what do we rely? Well, Daniil tells us we rely on our moral conscience, and surely that's true. But here's the challenge. Some will say that begs the really important question. 
how and from what sources should our moral consciences be formed? On what sources should they draw? Should we go off and read Immanuel Kant? Or should we learn Torah? Or the Gospels? And of course, some answers will be better than others. So, the first, I'll give you a chance to answer that <laughs> in a minute. But before you do, it seems to me that you're actually making, you're, you're actually making a more nuanced claim. The issue isn't the primacy of God versus the good. What you seem to be arguing against, if I understand you, is not the primacy of God, but the moral sovereignty of God, where a moral sovereign can simply declare and by the declaration make this good and that bad. This idea that there is a moral sovereign who has that power. We see it in the pure form in the philosophy of Thomas Hobbes, whose Leviathan, who was a person, a human being, not a god, with godlike powers, Hobbes' Leviathan, the sovereign, could just name the just and name the unjust and there was no independent prior respect in which this or that way of treating people, say, was just. And so Hobbes, in a way, created in his Leviathan a kind of a god, the kind of a god that Daniel rejects, a morally sovereign god, a god who is sovereign with regard to what is good. And I think that's a very sound impulse. But if that's the target, then it's not the, the target is not the primacy of God as such. The target is, it seems to me, a certain conception of God as the moral sovereign who by fiat can tell us what's good and what's not. What do you think about that suggestion? <laughs> First, I'd like to thank you for being here. Um, we're friends for a very, very long time, and um, you do me a great honor um, by, um, by being here tonight, and I am truly, truly in your debt. Um, A lot of people didn't want me to call the book Putting God Second. First and foremost, my wife. <laughs> Don't say that, she said. Don't say that. Because there is a sense, and I think even in your latter question, that there's something oxymoron about it. It's like, what do you mean God's on second? Then, like, who should be on first more than God? Um, 
there's two impulses, there's two dimensions of religion's autoimmune diseases that um, I struggle with. And rejecting God as the sovereign when it comes to ethics only solves the second, but not the first. In my own personal religious life, in my own personal life, um, and in the world in which I live, I can't tell you how many times you encounter moral blindness. Not moral redefinition, but moral blindness as a consequence of faith. Where people just, they just don't see you. Because they're, they're, you know, they're like uh, Hebrew national. <laughs> they're like, they're answering to a higher authority. <laughs> they're hot dogs. And the amount of, the, the tragedy that is, that is spilt in their wake. Um, and it's not that they don't, that, that because of God they've redefined the good. It's because of their perceptions of, or their commitment to God, they just see human beings less. Do you know who's on first? Not Kant, your neighbor. God seconds, it's your neighbors I'm first. It's your neighbor. I want you to see them. Forget, forget the, 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 the struggle of who will determine the good. Do you see your neighbor? Or in the name of your religious faith, you don't even, you, they don't exist. For that, fighting the sovereign God is not sufficient. For that, God needs to be put second. And as I argue, that it's, it's a book. What is it that we thought God wanted when God created the world and entered into a covenantal relationship? Do you think God wanted a goat? I am the universal transcendent being of history. Give me a goat. <laughs> I'm happy. Done. You, I got a goat. It's a nice goat. It's an unblemished goat. <laughs> it's a year old. No one put there. It was it, oh, phenomenal goat. There's a sense here that the act of creation is God putting God's self second that embedded in the act of creation, that in the act of mitzvah, God is actually redefining the priorities. But we human beings, this is, we're not hearing. Or, so that's, that's a separate, um, I can't tell you, I'm sorry. Yes. No, so the, but there are two issues here. So it's two, right. All right, so the second issue, let, let's follow up on the second issue, then we'll see how it's connected to the first, if it is connected. 
The second issue, you identify two characteristic tendencies, and this is fascinating, of faith, of the love of God. One is that, that push it off the rails, God intoxication and God manipulation. Now, of the, the two are not exactly, it seems to me, I might be wrong, it doesn't seem to me that they're symmetric uh, tendencies or dangers for the following reason. God manipulation is when people advance their own self-interest and latch on to God, uh, try to claim him as an ally. But that's a species of a more general tendency to use any handy tool or ally manipulatively in the headlong pursuit of some end, maybe a malevolent end. So God manipulation seems to me less interesting than God intoxication. Less interesting because it's less profound and less integral to and distinctive of the religious life. Unless it's integral to monotheism, to the idea of the one God. The Which? oneness, this, the manipulation. In other words... But you can manipulate you can, but Baal, the one, you can manipulate... You, you could, but here, which, this one transcendent God activates within humankind the Yetzirah, which the Bible plays out very, very well. You know, and as I speak very often, one of the saddest parts of the whole Bible is the story is 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 and the most and the, and and the most tragic figure in the Bible is Isa, who's a good man. He just wasn't the chosen one. And Jacob, our forefather, who we are so proud of. Um, at the instigation of his mother um, and at her, with her direction, steals the birthright. And he gets the blessing. And then there's this moment that Isa comes to Isaac. And he says, Abba, hi, I'm here. And his Abba says, what do you mean you're here? You were just here. No, 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 that was, I'm here. And he says, no. Oh my God, what did I do? And Isa says, Abba, could I have a bracha? And Yitzchak says, no. I gave it all to Jacob. Like, where does this distorted idea come from? Where does this sick idea that there's not enough brachas to go around? I think that distorted idea is, is not merely the, the byproduct of human beings capable of manipulating anything to their service. It's embedded within the religious passion of monotheism. That when you fully integrate the idea that this is the one God of history, well, it, every religious tradition, every one of them, advocates for a chosenness which then guarantees for them um, uh, um, primacy and victory. And what makes it far more complicated is that we're not just merely co-opting allies. We're creating a circular, enclosed value system which enables us not merely to continue what we're doing with comfort, but now we are sanctioned by God. 
It's like, you know, the, I quote, you know, what I think is the worst chapter in the Bible, Deuteronomy 20. And to say it's the worst, there's, there's competitors. But, it's, it's, but like, it's, this is a bad one. And I remember, we, we used to study it together. I remember um, with Michael Walsh, I remember the moment after the war in Lebanon when he came to Israel and taught morality of war um, a, um, to a bunch of uh, veteran students um, who had just come back from the war. And I remember writing for him back then as an undergraduate, because um, I just, I saw this. When you go out to war against your enemy, have no fear because God is with you. That's a nice verse. The head of Givati quoted that verse when, as an inspiration to his soldiers, as, he went, as they went to war in Gaza. Your enemy. Well, that's a good thing. If God's on my side against my enemy, that's a good thing. Thank God God's on my side. They're my enemy. And obviously they're attacking me. But eight verses later, the Bible tells you who the enemy is. The enemy are not people who've attacked you. The enemy are those people who you attack, who lie very far away from you, and you are simply attacking them because you want the stuff that they have. And what religion gives you is it gives you not merely space. It gives you religious inspiration, religious motivation. Fight one more war. Go fight one more day. There's not one war that Israel fights that the first people who go out to declare it holy, holy, holy are religious leaders. There's not one time when the Prime Minister of Israel, Bibi Netanyahu and Bugiya Alon, of blessed memory, <laughs> you understand, um, stop the war in Gaza because they know what we're not allowed to talk about. They know that we can't win the war in Gaza and that regardless of what we say, because Israel, the army could solve any problem that there is, the army has a solution. They know that in Gaza, it is the most, we, we are in a situation in which we are confronting a terrorist organization with unlimited power. Not the power to destroy Israel, but the power to draw us into a war at will. At will. It's like, here it is. There sh we have nothing we can do. And it's a war that we can't fight. Now, we don't want to say that because we like to believe that we're autonomous and we can determine and that we're going to be fine. Whenever they want, they could draw us into a war. By the 30th missile, no country in the world and under no standard of, of just war theory will our response be... Um, um, uh, um, unjustified, inappropriate. Then we have questions of proportionality and we have questions of civilian casualties. But even there too, they, they will all, we are, if they drag the war for more than two to three weeks, it's a victory. And if it continues more than three weeks, we'll never win it. We can't. Because while we want to, I think it's Sheba Hospital where they're all hiding in the bunkers in Aza. If we move and try to capture the city of Gaza and to capture the hospital, 
even if we kill all of the Hamas people, to do so, there'll be a thousand Israeli soldier casualties and probably at minimum 10,000 Gazans. At minimum, if not more, a thousand. The consequence of that. And even if we kill them, someone else will take their place. It's not, this is not major, running a terrorist organization is not the same as major military strategy. There's, there's hundreds of people. We can't win it. So the Prime Minister of Israel and the Defense Minister get up and say that they declared victory and wanted to go home. Who's the first one to say, fight another day? There's something about the potential of God to create um, a, a, a religiously motivated ideology which is particular to religion, which is more dangerous than, uh, than, than simply your ability to manipulate your national or social structure. Um, well, let, let's take the example of war. Okay. Jihad, which is a divinely sanctioned war. Correct. Now, there are two kinds of such wars. There are unjust wars that are carried out in the name of God, right. and you've just given one. But and, and that's an instance of manipulation of the two tendencies. But the harder and philosophically, politically, theologically more interesting case is where it's a just war. And those who fight it claim and know that God is on their side. They're not, or are they, manipulating? Not in the same way. Not in the same way. And, I mean, and there, and yet, that kind of holy war, a just war, is in some ways, would you say, even more dangerous. Yes. Um, it, it's, I remember I was asked to speak to um, and let me give one example that's, that this is not only a matter of, of Jewish or Islamic jihad. The Union soldiers going off to fight the Civil War sang the Battle Hymn of the Republic, which begins, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. That is, and that song, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, is a jihadist song, if you think about it. Remember, think of those lyrics. And it was sung and it inspired soldiers who were fighting a just war to get rid of slavery. And yet, and, and it, was a, it was, nonetheless, it was a jihad. It seems to me that that's less God manipulation than a certain kind of God intoxication. It shades into that, which is why it's, more dangerous, more profound. I'm with you. I, I agree with you. Um, I was asked a couple of months ago to speak to the whole, um, to the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the Israeli Army and um, to speak to them about um, this precise question about whether, about the role of religion um, in shaping the, the, the 
the fortitude of our soldiers. Because the military, from their perspective, their job is to get the job done. And a soldier who believes, like the head of the Givati Brigade, that who believes that God's with him, will create a soldier who's braver, who has greater conviction, and who will ultimately, potentially, be able to fulfill their task more effectively. And I, part of what I raised to them was, beware what you wish for. Because that soldier, who is, like once you put God in, and that's where the two intersect, once you put God in the story, you're gonna get consequences that you might not necessarily want. And you're gonna get soldiers who might be interested in, or might be committed to fulfilling the mission of the army, but not, might not do so in the method that the army wants them to fulfill that mission. Right. And so you, 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 have to be, you have to be very, very careful. And um, I think part of this, Yeshaya Leibovich, he said, just keep God out of this whole conversation altogether. Just keep it out of the conversation. And in 1967, he saw this coming. He and he, because he understood the God intoxication that went with controlling the West and, Bank. And the Judea God manipulation. I think it, they're both. He saw, see, Israel is, a, it's, you see both of them in many, very often. They're both, he saw them coming. But part of the motivation for writing this book is that you're not going to succeed in taking God out of the conversation. And that when Israel saw itself more in secular terms, that type of discussion was possible. Israel is now a profoundly religious country. Even the seculars are, are religious. Even the secular are kissing mezuzahs all the time. Three, four hundred thousand people go up to Meron, um, to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's, like, it, the numbers, it's, it's, these are remarkable numbers. This is a very, this is a country where even the secularists believe in God. And um, part of what we need is a different type of God talk rather than the, than the keeping of God completely out of the conversation. Okay, well, I was going to ask you about those soldiers. And I certainly understand that soldiers, especially if they are fighting a just war, who believe that the war is a, also a holy war, that there's a danger in that. And this, I think, is the intoxication that you worry about. But your advice I'm guessing your advice to the generals is not, therefore, try to tamp that down, try to keep that out. I imagine the advice would be, make sure that those soldiers somehow have a deeper understanding of the holy, not that they get rid of it, not that they create a separation of, of church and state or of 
faith and battle, but that they need moral and religious education that enables them when they exercise, this gets back to our first question, when they exercise their independent moral conscience. They don't have to do it in a purely secular way, but they should exercise a conscience that has been formed by a certain kind of Jewish education. Not a wholly secular one, or, or is that what you're suggesting? Um, what I'm and I think you might be torn I, on this. No, I, I am, but what, I'm ta- what I want is I want Kant and the Beit Midrash. Not in this, what I want is yeah. that people, in the midst of their religious education, understand the limits of their religious faith. Understand the limits of their tradition. Understand their limits of what this or that person says or commands in the name of their religion. It's, I don't want to remove God. You can't take God out of the conversation. But it's not simply by saying, I need you to have a deeper understanding of the holy unto itself. I need you to have an understanding of an obligation outside of the holy. Maybe for some, I'll put it this way. And I, this is, for some, there are some people, many, for whom a relationship with God, a deeper connection to holiness, inspires them to a life of humility and a life of moral responsibility. I'm not here to argue with them. You're fine. But religious traditions aren't written for the exceptional ones. They're written for the average for all of us. And that move is a move which earlier on in my life I advocated it and I saw its failure. That unless there, unless there is something outside, unless the students believe that that has just as much authority as the God to whom they are committed to, at the end of the day, they're just going to repeat the same mistakes over and over and over again. And you have to realize, I live in a country. The more you're committed to God, the less you're committed to the rights of Arabs to vote. The more religious you are, the less you're committed to democracy. De facto, but not in truth. Not the way... Religion so, ought to be understood. You see, but here, here, as a teacher, you want to change that understanding. This is of an educational. Pro- this is an educational book. This is a book which is trying to argue because religion is about education. Religion is not about theory. Right. It's not about. It's about how do we change human beings? And I'm arguing that unless we don't rethink the way we do religion. We're going to end up over and again. You have to go back. It's like the shocking nature of Isaiah chapter 1. The shocking nature of it. When God says, what are you doing here? Why are you in my temple? Every single new moon and Shabbos and holiday makes me nauseous. (laughs) This is is Isaiah 1. It's not to kneel. This is Isaiah 1. God says, it makes me nauseous. Why are you showing up here and giving me a goat? Who asked this of you? He says, 
who asked this of you? And I sit there and say, what do you mean? You did. Did you forget the book of, of Leviticus and Numbers? Of the 613 commandments, a majority are laws of the goat. They are. They're laws of what, of which goat, how do you bring the goat, when to bring the goat, which blood, the smell. Literally half, over half of Torah is the laws of the goat. And this is like, so, 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 and God says, who asked this of you? You have, educationally, I could agree with you in a pure conceptual, this is not a, a conceptual question as to what extent holiness could coexist with the idea of the primacy of the ethical. This is an educational argument, and that's why it's the autoimmune disease which affects human life, human beings, when they enter into a religious system. And therefore, we need to find a different way to live our religious lives, and, not, and, and to, we need a different conversation. Um, because the other path, listen, for 2,000 years now, it hasn't been doing so well. So I argue that it's not, my argument is that it's not by, I'm not arguing conceptually, I agree with you. But, but it alters us and we need to alter our educational teaching. We have to alter the way we raise our kids. We have to alter the curriculum that we have in schools. We have to alter the way we talk about God. We have to reach a place that people, that what, there's an old rabbinic tradition with which I start this book, which God says, If only they had left me and kept my Torah. This was said 2,000 years ago by the rabbis. That's religiously, you don't hear it. And we all are, are walking along as if, if you just fully understood the essence of the holy, you'll get it right. When I think we're not going to. And, um, you know, I, I thank people, I, I thank the, the, the positive things that were said about the book. But it's just a book. It's, you know, I'm not, I don't get, I'm not getting overly impressed with myself. No, it's like, it's a book. I think it's an interesting, I love the book. It's an interesting book. Uh, I hope you're right. <laughs> but like, you know, I didn't, I, halavai, you know, if you, from your ears to history, because today, you know, from your mouth to history. Um, but it's like, it's, 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 it's trying to just think about it a little differently. Think about it differently. Is it time for us not to repeat this, for us to get out of what we assume to be religious talk and to create a different type of religious talk. That's... Okay, but that's and, and different I, and from I outside. You. That's different from outside. Depends what you mean by outside. Is it, is it putting God second, or is it putting God in dialogue with ethical traditions derived, some from the Torah, some from Immanuel Kant, really contestable is. traditions? I hear, I hear you. I hear you. It, for me, Competing really, interpretations. For me, it really is putting God second. Thank I you. My soul. For me, it really is. I think you're conflicted. I think they could go on all night. That. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank Dr. Sandel and Rabbi Hartman. Thank you, Rabbi Garden Schwartz and Rabbi Hamilton. Books will be available for sale, and if we can get Daniil out here quickly, he'll be able to autograph them for you. Uh, and there's also a nice little reception in the foyer. We invite you to join us, buy a book, and uh, continue the conversation in the hallway. Thank you very much.